seated. Thank you, Tim and Bridget. I didn't tell um, Bridget what the text was going to be when I asked her to read it for me. Little did she know she would get thrown under the bus and read the text about paying your taxes. (laughs) Thank you so much, guys. Well, yes, this is... This is an unusual text. It's an unusual passage. And if you're wondering why on earth we picked this one, if you're new to Vespers, you haven't been here before, the reason why is because we've been walking through the book of Romans, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and this is one of the parts of Romans. So we're going to talk about it. And we're going to try to understand what God's word is saying to us here. Now, I couldn't help but think this week of, well, the State of the Union address. Did you guys see the most recent State of the Union address? Some of y'all did. Oh, well, it actually doesn't matter if you've read, seen the most recent one. Have you seen any State of the Union address? I hope most of you have, at least one of them. Because there's something that really uh, interesting that happens that kind of is going to help prove my point here today. The president will make a statement about some policy, and half of the room will stand up and cheer and say, right on. And the other half of the room will stay in their seat with a scowl on their face. And, you know, in recent days, boo loudly. You've got this this public statement that some people absolutely love and they say, preach it. And other people absolutely hate and they say, how dare you say that? And that usually is how public statements go. There's a group of people that really like it. There's a group of people that really don't. And not just for the State of the Union address, any press conference you see, a stand-up comedy routine, uh, a sermon even, there will be the groups that say that was right on and the other groups that say, whoa, that really was off. That usually is how a public statement goes. Now, every now and then there's a public statement that somehow, some way seems to be able to placate everyone to make everybody happy. It's very rare, but it happens every now and then. Usually, when you look at it closely, it didn't really say anything of much substance, and that's why everybody's happy. But then, there's also times where a public statement will seemingly make everyone mad. Everybody. All the different competing groups that usually are at, you know, loggerheads with each other, they are united in hating whatever was said. And you might think that, okay, that must mean that that was a really bad, untruthful, unwise public statement. But the truth is, usually the ones that make everybody mad are the ones you should pay closer attention to because maybe there's something profoundly important that was said. I had a, a professor in college, political philosophy professor, her name was Peter Lawler. And I remember he used to always say that the lectures he gave where he felt like he had been most successful, that he had educated people the best, were the ones where both the liberal students and the conservative students were equally mad at him. And I felt that way in sermons sometimes. The times where the, the word has taken us to kind of foray into some sort of uh, hot button topics and issues. If I get uh, upset emails from people that are both from the conservative side of things and the liberal side of things, from people that are both from the traditionalist side of things and the more kind of uh, maybe charismatic side of things, then I feel like maybe I'm on the right track. (laughs) If I didn't make anybody happy, maybe there was a little something of truth there. 
Now, I know you could probably pick that apart, but I hope you'll, you'll see why I thought of that when it comes to this particular text. Because Romans 13, as I was studying this week and really leaning into it and learning from the resources that I have, I began to realize that when Paul wrote this letter in the first century and when he sent it out kind of as a public statement on how we should relate to government authorities, it ticked everyone off. I don't think there was a single group that would have felt placated or cozied up to with this particular statement. Now, I know you're probably thinking like, Josh, there's a really obvious group that would feel good about this, but I'm not so sure. The, the Roman citizens that it was written to would have been ticked off by this. They're being told to, like we said before, pay their taxes, honor and respect these government authorities that have been put into their life. And not only them, I think the Roman emperors, the governors, the magistrates, the kings and the princes that would have been the rulers of this day, they would have been ticked off too, believe it or not. We'll get to that in a second. So the Roman citizens it was written to, the rulers that this is talking about, everybody's upset. And then to add insult to injury, all the rest of us who have grappled with this text for generations after it was written, we're ticked off by it too. Not just because it tells us to be subject to the authorities in our lives, but because we, we have the perspective of history and knowing that there are government authorities and rulers that have not always been the ideal ruler that's described here. There have been government authorities and rulers that have promoted wickedness and evil and have done it. And we say, how could God's word tell me to respect that or obey that? Everybody's mad. But like I said previously, when a public statement ticks off everyone, that should make us want to listen a little bit closely or a little bit more closely, I should say. That should make us sort of take notice and say, there might be something kind of profoundly true that's happening here because this isn't trying to placate anyone. It's not trying to bend the rules to protect anyone. It is saying God's truth is this, even if it makes every interested party upset. So let's take a look at that. I've sort of organized this whole sermon around this idea of like, who's mad over what's written here? Probably if I had come up with that earlier in the week, that would have been the title for the sermon. Who's mad? And we're going to run down the list that I kind of previewed for you a little bit, but take a look at it closer. So the first group that's mad, the citizens, the Roman citizens that are receiving this letter, Paul writes to them, they're these little house churches throughout the city of Rome, and all of them would have been under the jurisdiction and oversight of the Roman emperor and then the different magistrates and governors that he would have put in charge over different parts of the city or areas of life. And, I mean, spoiler alert, you, you don't have to be a history buff to know this. Those Roman emperors, um, they, uh, they could take advantage of their authority at certain times in history with exorbitant taxes, uh, conscription of making citizens be part of the army and be on the front lines, whatever it might be, 
These were not rulers that were always easy to love. And Paul tells the citizens, the first thing he tells them right out of the gate, verse 1, let every person, that is all souls, in case you're wondering in the Greek, let all souls be subject to the governing authorities. And the implication as we keep going is it's the governing authorities that God has instituted and put into your life. So he makes this broad, sweeping, huge statement. Let everyone be subject to the authorities they have in their lives. The ones you like and the ones you don't like. The ones you think are awesome and the ones that you think are foolish. The laws that you think are incredible and the laws that you think are really dumb. Let everyone be subject to the authority that God has been put into their life. And then, and then it gets even more kind of intense. Paul actually suggests, this is in, um, in verse 2. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities, resists what God has appointed. He goes so far to say is that if you push back on this idea of being subject to the authorities God's put in your life, that you are actually resisting what God himself put into place. Can you see why they would have been ticked off? Are you ticked off yet? This, uh, this idea of subjection is one that we probably need to unpack a little bit more. I could say, oh yeah, he told us to be subject, but what does that mean? Subjection, submission, I found kind of a helpful definition this week in my studies. This, uh, not often do I quote the commentaries that I read, but every now and then there's something that's just super helpful. So I just thought I'd put it up there as it is. To be subject or to submit is to recognize one's subordinate place in a hierarchy. To acknowledge as a general rule that certain people or institutions have authority over us. So the big takeaway that I had from this is that the heart of subjection or submission is a, <laughs> going to repeat the word here, it's a heart attitude. It's a posture. It's a general approach or mindset towards the authorities God's put in our life. And it's seeing ourselves as part of this hierarchy that we have a place in. Interestingly enough, that same definition can be used for other places where we're told about submission in the Bible. Like, for instance, believers submitting to the spiritual authorities that God has put in their life through the church. Or wives submitting to their husbands in Ephesians 5 language and speech. This is this, this heart orientation, this posture, this general sort of mindset and approach. Which, maybe the reason that I'm really stressing this is because of what it's not. It's a general posture, not blind obedience. If blind obedience was what Paul was going for when he wrote this, there was a word for that. He did not use it. He used the word for submission or subjection, which we've seen in other relationships, is more of this general attitude, mindset, posture, approach. It is humility. It is knowing where I fit in the way that God has ordained things, but it's not this robotic, rote, you say it, I do it obedience. That, it will be important for us in a moment when we come to some other considerations. Now, what does this practically look like for these Roman citizens in the first century, or for anybody for that matter? Well, 
It was at the end of our text. He says, give honor to whom honor is owed. Give respect to whom respect is owed. I believe that what that's meaning in this, this idea of this heart posture attitude towards leaders is saying, hey, when you think about the leaders God's put in your life, think about it with honor and respect. When you speak about them, speak about them with honor and respect. When you pray for them, pray for them faithfully and carefully with honor and respect that they are due because of where God's put them in your life. It's interesting, I was chatting with, uh, with Carrie, our children's ministry coordinator before church here. She was up in the paradise service and heard my sermon earlier. And she, she said, like, you know what it would be a great litmus test for that, if we're doing that or not? It's what our kids would tell us about what our attitude is towards the leaders in our life. They'll know if we really show respect and honor, if we faithfully pray for our leaders. And I was like, wow, you're right. And she also said they also know if we're just doing lip service, but deep down we don't really feel that way. Paul gives even more practical here when he says, pay taxes to whom taxes are owed. There might be some historical context here. There was some of my reading this week was suggesting that there were, there were multiple times in the city of Rome in the first century where there were kind of like these mass revolts. Groups of people saying like, emperor, you tax us too much, we're not paying it anymore. And Christians could have gotten caught up in that, of this resistance to paying the taxes that were due to the emperor. And they could have gotten caught up in that because they had this sort of uh, understanding that because now Jesus has come and he's the ultimate authority, he's the ultimate king, I'm a citizen of heaven, not a citizen of the Roman Empire, therefore I'm exempt from these taxes that the government tells me I owe. That could have been their justification. And to that, Paul says, no, 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 no. King Jesus is the ultimate emperor. We are citizens of the kingdom of heaven, but he still has sovereignly put in place these authorities that as long as that's the situation, we're gonna show them honor and respect and submit to them with that attitude as best as possible. And it all comes back down to well, I say back down to, but I don't think I've mentioned it yet. It all comes down to this key truth that cannot be avoided, that the authorities and the rulers in our life are there because God put them there. They're not there by accident. They're not there by chance. They're not there because the devil did it and God had his hands tied. No, repeatedly in the text we're told, well, let me just read it for you. There is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. When it's all said and done, the, the rationale behind this heart posture of subjection is because the authorities that God has given are, well, I just said it, God-given. They were put into place by him. So, the Roman citizens that receive this, that maybe are thinking that the book of Romans is going to give them carte blanche to say, I'm a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. I'm not part of your worldly power structures anymore. Well, they might have been a little bit ticked off by when they opened the letter and read, let every person be subject to the government authorities. Who else is upset though? Well, I mentioned it earlier. 
the rulers, they're mad at this too. Which might be surprising to you. I, I, I think probably before I did my study this week, I would have said that the rulers loved this. That to them, it served almost as like propaganda of keeping people in place, of keeping people from rebelling or not paying their taxes. Like it was basically sort of the Bible giving the rubber stamp on their reign and rule and nobody should question them because God put them in authority. Well, we're going to push back on that like this. And you see it up here on the screen. The rulers are multiple times in this passage referred to as what? Servants. In fact, the Greek word is diakonos. It's the the word we get our word for deacon from. These rulers, emperors, kings, princes, living in their opulent palaces, their word is said and people do it. They're being told in the Bible that actually they are servants of the Most High God. They are his deacons. Do you think a Roman emperor had ever in his life been told that he was a servant of anyone else? I don't think so. Uh, A king of Persia with all their pomp and circumstance being told that they were a deacon? No way. Even if someone had dared to suggest that, that person probably would have been executed very quickly afterwards. I doubt there's anybody that would have suggested to these rulers that at this moment in time were so, you know, high and exalted in quotation marks. No one would have suggested to them that they were servants. In fact, in Rome... And these days, and a little bit beforehand, but then afterwards too, there's this entire religion that begins to pop up called the imperial cult. Its, a, it's reason to be was to worship the emperor as a god. There were religious observances and rites and sacrifices that were made in the cult. Divine names and attributes would be given to the different Roman leaders and rulers. You can see it even on some of the coins that they issued. The word gospel that we have, the good news of King Jesus coming to earth, that's a word that was used by Roman emperors to talk about their gospel, the gospel of Caesar Augustus who's brought peace and prosperity to all mankind. These guys thought of themselves as gods. The Bible is saying, no, you're actually servants, deacons, ministers. Woo! I would have hated to be the messenger that brought this letter to the Roman emperor. (laughs) He would have been in a bad mood after he read it. And not only that, we're told that they are servants, but then get this. The Bible has the audacity to tell them that they actually have a job to do. That they aren't in charge of whatever they want to do. They are answerable to their boss for a job they've been given. Do you think the emperor of Rome ever had like a fast food job as a teenager? That joke was funnier than you acted. (laughs) Maybe it wasn't actually. The answer is no. And your tepid laughter showed me that you got it. No, the emperor of Rome had never had a menial job before, but now he's being told, verse 3, rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. 
Bible's saying, hey, emperors are actually an instrument. God uses them to temper the evil in society and promote the good. And even though we can name billions of things that are wrong in current society, the reality is anarchy is curbed in by some sort of leadership structure and organization. Years ago, I I was reading this week, there there was situations, you probably remember, of border towns in Mexico that had been completely overrun by drug cartels. There was no authority, and it was harrowing. Or even not too long ago, I remember there was in the state of Sinaloa, there was basically anarchy with drugs cartels fighting with government authorities and the citizens caught in the middle and saying, we, there's no one that's an authority to curb evil and promote what is good. God's saying, I've put these rulers in place because they have a job. And they're able to do it in a way that benefits all in my common grace. And it keeps going. Verse five, therefore one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Actually, wrong verse. Let me back up a little bit. This is the end of verse four. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. That God's wrath phrase is what's interesting to me there because it links this paragraph with what we read before in Romans 12. Do you remember in that sermon that I did a few weeks back that was about blessing those who persecute us and loving our enemies, we came across this very curious verse that packed a punch. It said this, beloved, do not avenge yourselves but make room for the wrath of God. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. And we talked about that as, you know, when we let go of the wrongs and the injustices that have been done to us, when we choose to love and to bless instead of avenge ourselves, we're giving it to God and saying, Lord, there is a great and final day, the day of judgment that's coming where we trust that you will make all things right. But it's not just this future judgment day that the Bible's talking about. It's also speaking about the way in which God's wrath can be brought to bear today in the present. Not in fullness, but he's able to use the governors, the authorities, the rulers he's put into place to bring justice to bear on those that have done wrong. I told y'all a few weeks ago, back when we were talking about all this, the story about Graham Staines, the missionary who was murdered in his car with his two young sons. And I told y'all about his wife, Gladys, and how when she had a chance to make public comment about what has happened, she chose to bless rather than curse. She chose to love. She chose to urge the people of India to come to know Jesus through what had happened. But one footnote on that story that I can't remember if I actually told you guys or not. The man who was responsible for inciting the mob and instigating that violence that killed Graham and his sons, he was arrested. He was indicted. And to this day, he is serving a life sentence in jail. When 
Gladys Stane said, I'm going to make room for the wrath of God and not avenge myself here. She was holding out for the day of judgment in the future, yes, but she's also holding out that God's authorities he's put in place would actually bring some justice to bear in that situation. That's why this portion of the text is so close to the one we've been looking at in this just the last few weeks. All this to bring back to that point that I was trying to share with the rulers have probably for the first time in their lives are being told that they are servants, but also that they have a job to do. They are answerable to God for if they do it well or not. Something I'm sure would have been quite offensive to many of them. Let me finish off, though, with this last reflection. I know we're getting close to time here. The last group that's upset by this text, and you see it up here on the screen, everybody else. (laughs) The first century Romans that received the letter, the rulers that were talked about, and then all the rest of us throughout history, throughout time, who have struggled with these words, in particular, have struggled with what does this mean when the rulers aren't good? When the rulers don't promote good and punish evil, when they are not an instrument for God's justice, does this still apply? And if so, does this mean that I just blindly obey whatever authority says to do, even if it's evil and wrong? My answer to that is going to be insultingly simple. There are books volumes, articles that have been written on this subject. And so the idea that in five minutes I'm going to solve it all is kind of dumb, but I'm going to try my best. And I'm just going to give you a simple answer. And I think I can give a simple answer. The answer is no. Romans 13 is not asking you to blindly obey whatever authority you have, especially when they ask you to do something that's wrong or evil or goes against God's law. It's not what this is saying. And all those times throughout history where we compare what God's word here is saying versus, say, for instance, Germany in the 1930s, when the German government was sending hundreds of thousands to people, of people, Jewish people, to their death. Or even the Roman emperors in the years after this was written who would demand that Christians bow down and worship them, and Christians would say, no, they weren't in defiance of Romans 13. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who resisted the German government and saved Jewish people, wasn't in resistance of Romans 13. And I can say that with confidence because this book of Romans is part of a much bigger book. The whole counsel of God, the Bible, the Old and the New Testaments. It fits into that, and so I read it through the lens of everything else that I've seen in the Scripture. And you should too. And what you see in the scripture, if you start from the beginning and go through to the end, is many instances of, for lack of a better phrase, what we would call civil disobedience. I go back to the story of Moses and the women that saved Moses, even though they were ordered by the Pharaoh, the God-appointed authority in their life, to kill all the baby Jewish boys. I think back to the book of Daniel and these three guys with really funny names. Who am I thinking of? 
Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Yes. Why haven't any of y'all named your son Shadrach, Meshach, or Abednego? You're all looking for like unique Bible names that's just there for the taking. Our wives won't let us. <laughs> Our wives won't let us. Mm. Well, anyways, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are told by the king, whenever you hear the song played, you bow down and you worship the golden idol that's been presented to you. And they say, we cannot. They're thrown into the fiery furnace because of it. Or we could do New Testament, Acts 5. Peter and the apostles are brought before the high council, the Judean leaders, the authorities that God had put in their life at the time. And those authorities say, you better not preach that gospel anymore. You better keep the name of Jesus out of your mouth. And they say, we love y'all. We respect y'all. But we can't do that. In fact, I've got it up here on the screen. This is... <laughs> The end of that verse, Acts 5.29, we must obey God rather than men. This is just a, a smattering of many examples all throughout the Bible, the same thing happening. So how do we reconcile that with Romans 13? Well, it all comes back to that definition of subjection that we talked about. What does it mean? To subject yourself or submit. It is not blind obedience. It is not robotic input. The emperor says this and it always happened. No, it is an attitude, a, a heart posture of respect and honor and obedience to the extent that I can good in good conscience give obedience. But if ever I am asked to do something that rejects the law of God or turns my back on him or perpetrates evil, I have to say no. Listen, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Peter, and the apostles, one of the things that's so striking about their stories of when they defied the authorities is how respectful they were in the midst of it. How you almost get this sense of that they were doing everything they could to honor and give deference to the authority that God had put into their life. But it had to stop at that point where they did something that was contrary to what God had said. And why I'm sharing that with you is because I want you to realize that when we resist what an authority God's put in our life has said, we do not do that lightly. We do not do that because it's easier that way or because we're ticked off in a minor way or because we'd prefer not to. It is a huge decision, a weighty decision, and one that should still be couched in this general attitude and posture of love and respect and honoring, humbly honoring who and what God has put into our life. Daniel didn't just look at the Persian king and say, I defy you, you're dumb, you're stupid, and I'm not going to pay attention to what you're saying. does everything he can to show humble deference up to the point where he cannot go any further. Even the Apostle Paul, there's a story in the book of Acts where Paul is confronting the high priest and he says, you're like a whitewashed tomb and the judgment of the Lord is going to come upon you. And somebody says, do you know who you're speaking to? That's the high priest. And Paul says, oh my goodness, forgive me. He says, I know that God has put you in place as authority and we are not supposed to speak against the high priest like that. 
Now notice, he doesn't take back his words about the judgment, but he does say, I owe you a respect and honor that I didn't show you right there. This has to be our mindset of being faithful to what this says as much as we can, but always knowing that this isn't blind obedience and there might be times where we have to do something different. Interestingly enough, it's a lot of this that was on our mind as church leadership as we tried to navigate through COVID these last few years. And especially with the meeting or not meeting. And I don't know if we did that well, but I can tell you that your leadership was desperately trying to seek God's wisdom on how do we be faithful to words like this but also know that there are times where we're being told to do something that's contrary to what God has said. And we need God to lead us first and foremost. So I end there. The three groups that are mad, the Roman citizens, the rulers who were called servants, but then the rest of us who struggle with how does this apply when we have a bad government. But I hope this last sort of meditation that we've had here on what subjection truly means makes it where maybe you're not so mad at this text anymore. You're not ticked off by it. And you see here teaching that once again asks you to follow the path of humility and boasting in Jesus alone, but also knowing that there are times that you might have to stand against something wicked or evil not in defiance of what's said in Romans 13, but in fitting with the spirit of what it means. Let me pray. Father, help us to understand what what your word says to us here. And as much as I wanna give everybody here a formula that would apply in every situation and every time, I know it's impossible. What we need is wisdom. What we need is these words to soak deeply into our hearts so that we have people that are willing wherever they are in whatever situation they're in to say, Lord, how does your word apply here? Show me. Give me a humility not to lean on my own understanding, but to trust in your word. God, we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. As we come to the Lord's Supper table today,